It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Immigration and Me Too are back in the news. And we have a conversation with Professor Lisa Swain about bias, truth, and the future of democracy. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so excited to be here with everybody as we creep closer and closer to Election Day. We're going to start off talking about some news and then share our conversation with Lisa Swain before we talk about what's on our minds outside of politics. In the news this week is a conversation about how the United States should manage a large group of migrants coming from Honduras, Nicaragua, and Guatemala through Mexico. This group is being referred to as a caravan everywhere, and I think I'm realizing that those labels quickly distort the story. So I'm trying Mm -hmm. to remember this is a group of people traveling together. Folks are peeling off in some places and joining in some places as this movement toward our country comes in. The president has talked about militarizing the border and shutting down immigration from Mexico if the Mexican government doesn't stop this inflow of people. And the New York Times is reporting that the administration is considering asking families to make an election of either voluntarily separating minors from their parents to put minors in foster care programs while parents are detained 
or having the families detained together. We have very few facilities that can accommodate that kind of situation. And so this is a real mess. I feel like this goes back to our previous conversations on the topics of immigration and refugees and our administration's approach, which is keep trying sticks, guys. Just keep at it. Just keep banging your head against the wall with your all sticks approach and tell me how it turns out because you are not going to stop desperate people. You are not going to punish them or their countries of origin or the countries they pass through to a level where everyone is going to stop trying to get here. Give it up. Give it up. People are desperate and they're going to go to desperate measures. The idea that we are going to threaten or yell or punish our way out of human immigration is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, and he just keeps doubling down as if it's going to fix anything. It's so stupid. Okay, so let's just, we'll, we'll shut down the border towns, and we'll push people into the deserts. Oh, well, people are still willing to risk their lives going through the deserts. Okay, well, then we'll just force them into these really posi- desperate positions where they have to depend on coyotes. Well, no, they'll figure something out. I mean, they're just, human beings <laughs> are very driven when their hierarchy of needs is at risk. And so if in their country of origin, they do not have safety or food or work, these sort of basic things we all need, then what they're not, you're not going to threaten them into sacrificing anything else. They've already sacrificed everything. That's why they're moving. That's why they're on the move, because they have nothing left to keep them there. I mean, what do you want these countries to do? point guns and say, you have to stay here or we'll kill you? I mean, I don't know where we're, where the end game is here, because this is what's going to happen. They're just going to join together in greater numbers with the understanding that they can't kill us all at once. It's just so, it's so outrageous, this idea that we are going to threaten our way out of this problem. I think you're right about all of that. When you see photos of people who are floating on rafts made out of tractor hoses. It's important to understand that we're past the deterrence conversation. We're This is not a situation where people are going to evaluate their options through the rubric that you would evaluate, you think you might evaluate your options in their position. And so we have a large number of people headed this way. I just think, what would it be like if instead of threatening Mexico in this way, we said, Mexico, how can our two countries work together to safely transition people? How can our two countries work together to make sure that we have addressed the security needs of our countries, the security needs of these human beings, the basic needs of these human beings, And everyone's economic interest in this process, because that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a real collaborative effort. This it's kind of like looking down the field and seeing a tornado coming and saying that tornado should not come. Tell it to go away. These Mm -hmm. these folks are coming. And the fact that they are still coming in light of everything that our country has done on immigration over the past two years validates what you said, Sarah, that deterrence is not going to do it. And so we, even if we wanted to take the absolute most onerous approach to people coming into the United States available to us, we aren't equipped to do that with this many people. 
I don't believe that that's the right thing to do. It's not my values as an American. But the Trump administration can't execute its own policies around this. We're not equipped for this many people. And so I wish that instead of deciding you know, 15 days before an election that we're going to stoke the fire of tribalism in our country by talking about illegal immigrants in the most dehumanizing terms possible, we could instead put that energy into finding a pragmatic solution to what is going to be an overwhelming situation, however you feel about people coming into our country. Beth, you had something else you wanted to discuss, which was the Daily's take on Louis C.K.'s comeback, specifically their interview with the owner of the Comedy Cellar, which is one of the venues at which Louis C.K. has been trying out new material. If you haven't listened to this episode, there is sound from several weeks, months. I've lost all track of time at this point. From some time ago when Louis C.K. initially showed up at the Comedy Cellar, as, as people frequently do. So you go to see a show And it's possible that someone really famous stops by to try out some new material while you're there. And that's part of the attraction of being there as a patron. And so Michael Barbaro, the host of The Daily, interviewed the owner of the Comedy Cellar right after Louis C.K. initially stopped by for his first performance since he had been not accused since he had admitted mm-hmm. to exposing himself to women and and otherwise harassing them. So they have this conversation about where the line is. And Michael Barbaro is really trying to get the owner of this comedy club to set an objective standard for who performs at his club and under what circumstances. And the guy keeps saying, I don't want to do that. That's not the business I'm in. The audience got upset about it. I understand why some people got upset. So I have created a policy now saying that you come at your own risk. I can't tell you who's going to be here, but if somebody comes here and you don't want to see that person, then you can leave, no questions asked, and everything is on the house for your time here. And he really wants no responsibility beyond that. And so Michael Barbaro presses him and says, what about Bill Cosby, who's been convicted in a court of law for behaviors around the abuse of and assault of women? And he says, oh, that's such a hard question. But you know what? I wouldn't I wouldn't feel comfortable, but I'm not going to create some kind of bright line. It's just going to be when do I feel comfortable having this person come? And the club owner is is real. It's important to him to say things like, do we want people to never work again? And if they don't work again, what do we expect to happen? And he talks about how inconsistent we are in these matters. He says nobody wants a warning that Bill Clinton is about to come into a room, which I thought was a really interesting part of the conversation. And so they have this whole discussion. And then Michael Barbaro has another call with him later after Louis C.K. is kind of mounting his comeback everywhere. And not much has really changed in his mind, except that I thought, and I'm interested in your take on this, Sarah, I thought the club owner sounded slightly more pissed off in the second call that he has to have this conversation at all. So that's the setup. And I just could not wait to hear what you thought about it, Sarah. Here's what was frustrating to me. First... 
there were two men having this conversation. They started the conversation by walking through the club and reading the names of the, I'm assuming they were either portraits or names somehow of people who had performed there. And without irony or awareness, they read the names, probably 70 to 80% of which were men. So they listed like uh, Michelle Wolf and Sarah Silverman. They probably listed 20 names of men that performed there. And only a, a tiny minority were women. And then later they talked about, oh, well, the real standard is if you're funny or not. And they could not piece together that that's why Louis C.K.'s story is important. It's not that we want Louis C.K. not to perform because we are punishing him by restricting his free speech because he had sexual misconduct towards women. Okay? That's not the conversation. The conversation is Louis C.K.'s sexual misconduct was intimidating and perpetuated an environment, a punishing environment for female comics, contributing to the problem of underrepresentation of women in comedy that they then turned around and talk about as if it is only a merit-based performance, a merit-based performance art. Louis C.K.'s behavior prevented women from succeeding because they were too busy surviving the trauma of the king of comedy masturbating in front of them to go ahead. I mean, I'm not going to speak for every female comic he masturbated in front of them and say, like, they couldn't perform afterwards. That's not what I'm saying. But it's like that behavior, that hostile environment in which you can't just go and do what you want to do and be a female comic because you're dodging Bill Cosby's freaking drinks and Louis C.K.'s offers to masturbate in front of you is the problem. We're not punishing Louis C.K. because he made a bad choice and we don't ever want to hear from him again. We're saying, hey, see this issue of hostile environment? Let's scale back the spots Louis C.K. gets and allow women to get some of those spots because they've been historically discriminated against and not allowed to perform in those spots. I mean, the comedy seller only has so many spots. It's hugely important to people's career and they only have so many spots. And they're going to men. And it's not because men are inherently funnier than women. So stop acting like that. That's the problem. That's a problem and that's a conversation they didn't even have because they were too busy, you know, fretting about whether this, where is, oh, where is Louis C.K. going to work again? Is he not allowed to work at Walmart? Seriously? Seriously? That's not what we're talking about here. Give me a freaking break. You know, my reaction was similar in that I realized through this conversation between these two men that we are having really different conversations because mm -hmm. Michael Barbaro, who I have great respect for, I think what they do at the Daily is great. He kept asking him about, he kept asking him to fulfill a role that this guy said, I'm not willing to fulfill. And what I kept thinking is, I don't want that guy filling that role either. I don't want that guy to be the police of what people say and do and what their con what conduct merits them performing or not performing. That is not what I'm asking of anyone. I think, though, that the whole tenor of this conversation around Me Too and around Louis C.K. in particular, but but you can see it in Brett Kavanaugh, you can see it everywhere, is that folks who are inclined to feel that this has all gone too far want to bring it back around to what is the punishment and who decides. Mm -hmm. And my ask as a woman is not for punishment or for every business owner to decide what that punishment is. 
My ask is for some self-reflection and a question on the part of everybody, how can we do better? And so I think you're right, Sarah, that I don't need the comedy club owner to decide that Louis C.K. can never perform on any stage ever again. I get that that's the conversation that these two guys had and some people want to be had. I want him to say, how could I contribute to making things better here? How can I create an environment where I have more funny women come perform? How can I create an environment where my wall starts to change in its composition? And I want Louis C.K. to think to himself, what is it like for people when I perform now? What kinds of material are appropriate for me? How might people be looking at me in a different way? What might I do with my resources to make the world a little better, given that I have contributed to some pretty serious problems in it? That's all I'm asking. I I really started to understand by listening to this pretty lengthy discussion that I'm in a totally different place from the argument about kind of crime and punishment around sexual interaction and over here saying, I just want everybody to think more. I want some of the punishment in quotes to be self-imposed because people are having a moment of reflection. Well, and what's so frustrating and what I just want to scream is like, no woman thinks that punishing men enough is going to fix it. We want to stop being punished. This isn't about we want to punish all men for being men. We're just asking to stop being punished because we're women. We're talking past each other. We're not saying, you know, never allowing Louis C.K. to speak again is not going to fix the problem of representation of women in comedy or other arts. And here I'm going to look this up because I'm going to crib just totally and completely from Linda Holmes. Uh, who's an amazing host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, and she had a Twitter thread a few weeks ago that I'm going to read a little bit part of. She says, First of all, it's incredibly naive at this point to believe in absolute meritocracy in any endeavor, but to blow off the influences of any kind of discrimination in comedy is ludicrous. Second of all, right in the same piece, they're talking about Louis C.K. being given a spot on stage, a spot many people would kill for. Giving him that spot is a specific choice made by a specific person or people. That doesn't just happen. There are people who give him that spot, people who think his comedy is funny and people who don't. The idea that it's like the hot air balloon in the good place and you walk near a stage and it turns red or green, that's fake. I hate this depersonalization of the ways that people become famous, get opportunities to remain famous, and get opportunities to recover from stumbles. Those are all choices. It's not an algorithm. I don't know even know if guys like this know how many people they're kind of kicking in the head when they say this stuff. Anyway, I'm taking a short break from dude opinions. And that's the thing that God was like, well, I don't want to make a choice. You are making a choice. I don't want to be the one making a choice. Too late. You already are. You own the place. You decide who gets on the stage. You're making the choice already. So give me that you only have a finite amount of spaces at the comedy cellar. You are making choices. And I, I think that that's this absolute meritocracy, too, is is you hear that in the stuff about Kavanaugh. You hear it in like, well, they really earned their way there, and we just hate to punish by taking it away with them without enough evidence, which I I contest the assumption at the base of that point to begin with, that anything is an absolute meritocracy, that, you know, and I say this even as a white woman, as everything that I got was just because I, you know, I scraped and clawed my way there. Give me a break, y'all. 
Give me a break. Louis C.K., listen. Louis C.K. can be exceptionally funny. No one is doubting that he had real talent that got him to the space that he was in. But that wasn't everything that got him there. And I think he would acknowledge that. And if he wants to earn his way back on that stage, then talk about that in a way that matters. Because I do believe that Louis C.K. owned what he did. And I believe that he's smart enough and funny enough to talk about it in a way that moves the conversation forward. But he's not making that choice. And until he does, if I was the person in charge of it, I wouldn't be choosing to let him on the stage. And that's the thing. I I want people to just have some awareness of those things. I want... I want the guy who owns the comedy cellar to recognize what choices he's making. And I'm not mad at him because he has to make choices. He has to. Right. I'm not mad at people who think that Brett Kavanaugh who's worked has worked very hard in his career. He has. The fact that he's had a lot of help and support and privilege along the way is not negated. That, that doesn't negate the fact that he's worked hard. Right. You, we can hold all these things together. It is both true that it is difficult to earn a law degree from an Ivy League institution and that you have had a lot of luck in life if you are able to get there and do that hard work. Both of those things are true. It's okay. From there, what do we do? That's the real question. And for me, that question needs to come way out of the rubric of what is the crime and what is the punishment and who imposes it? And I think as long as we're stuck there, we're going to keep getting angrier with each other, which is really what I observed in that daily episode. I, You know, you can tell that this person who owns this club has endured so much criticism that he is now angrier about it. And yep. I think that we're all doing that to each other. It's not that I'm learning something because we're having a conversation about impact versus intention. It is that we're feeling our intentions being questioned, and so we're just doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on where we were inclined to be in the first place. And Louis C.K. absolutely has the capacity to think about what he's done and make amends on his own terms. There are so many forms that that could take. Forms that would be immensely profitable to him in addition to being the right thing to do in the world. I'm not going to begrudge him of that. But I want him to do that self-reflective work instead of just starting to show up again and saying, what, do you not want me to work anymore? Yeah, seriously. I am grateful for Amazon this week because Amazon is investing $10 million in the Closed Loop Fund, which is an organization that works on recycling infrastructure. And part of what Closed Loop Fund does is think about ways that we can get trash sitting in landfills that's actually recyclable out and recycle it, Hmm. which I think is so important and brilliant. And I want all the dollars possible going to that. And so I'm I'm really delighted that Amazon is starting to think more about packaging and recycling and waste and putting some some dollars behind those efforts. And I'll link in the show notes an article about this fund and Amazon's investment in it. I am grateful for campaign volunteers this week, both my own. Several people went out with me this weekend and helped me knock doors, and it was hugely, hugely helpful. I was able to get to way more people than I would have on my own, but also to the people all over this country. Many of our listeners I know are dedicated campaign volunteers, seeing your 
pictures on, I'm getting a little verklempt, but like seeing you guys out there dedicating your time and energy, precious moments of your life, you do not get back to participate in our democracy. You know, I was reading Brene Brown this weekend and she just talks about bravery is showing up when you cannot control the outcome. And for better or for worse, campaign volunteering is some accepting that you can't control the outcome, that you have to just give what you can give and you don't know what's going to happen. And I think that that is wonderful. And I'm so proud and grateful of for all the people doing that across the country as we get closer and closer to Election Day. Can we take a minute here and deviate from our format a little bit? Sure. We've gotten so many messages asking us sort of what we think the likely outcomes are in the midterms and what we think those outcomes will mean. And I think that really ties in nicely to what you just said, Sarah, because my take on the midterms, and I tell this to everyone who asks me, is I have no idea what is going to happen. None. It depends entirely on who shows up to vote. And we always say that, and it's always true. I think it is especially true this time because polls are all over the place. I am suspicious of the way some of those polls are being cast. I think the enthusiasm of different groups is so much in flux day to day, depending on what's in the news cycle. And so if you are out there talking to your friends and neighbors about what's happening with these elections, I think you are doing really important work that matters because I do believe that this election is incredibly fluid and a real toss up. And my other opinion, and I'm curious about yours on this, Sarah, is what happens post-election depending on the outcome? I don't know that either. Because I could see I could see scenarios where no matter who is elected, not a lot changes. I also can foresee some very optimistic and hopeful scenarios. And I can foresee a scenario where things get infinitely worse. And so, again, I just think if there's someone that you really believe in, being out there working for them is is the best place to channel all of that energy that gets created when we're emotional and concerned and not able to control any of what happens. I'm an optimist at heart, so I am very hopeful that we will get a very different representation in the House of Representatives and that for their oversight role, again, things will start to look very different. I don't see this as an election in which if it doesn't go people's way, we're going to see less passion and interest in staying involved in politics. I don't see a lot of hopelessness, no matter the, the outcome. I think that people are going to stay invested and involved. I do. I just think, I think it's, you know, I think there's a generational turnover. I think that people are, that politics is just permeating everything in a way that it's, it's very difficult to um, turn away or opt out. And so I'm hoping that no matter the outcome, the trend of increased political involvement stays the same. I agree with you. I think rather than lamenting that we can't get away from politics, we just accept that as the new normal. We embrace it and we see it as an opportunity to do it better. Mm -hmm. That's my hope, that over time, we're moving towards doing this better. Well, speaking of doing it better, next up, we're going to have a chat with our listener, Lisa Swain, who has real expertise on bias. She's written a dissertation about why bias is not the beginning and the end of the conversation in evaluating our own opinions. And so we're excited to share that conversation with you up next. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? 
Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsuit for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy. We are here today with Lisa Swain, who has been 
an important part of our community for quite some time now. I feel like Lisa is one of those people when she is in our inboxes, I know I'm about to learn something. And she submitted to be a guest host as part of that adventure we opened up a couple of months ago. And we thought Lisa is a person who has very serious expertise in the topic she wanted to discuss. So let's bring her on to talk with both of us. So Lisa, thank you for being here. Will you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? That is such a kind introduction, Beth. I appreciate it. Um, my, I just finished my doctoral work uh, in the field of um, oppositional research. You know, uh, looking at how we navigate difference, um, and how we, and I'm specifically looking in the field of media psychology. So I'm looking at um, the role that media plays and the way that it shapes our values and our identity. Um, so it's just a little pertinent with what's going on in the <laughs> world. I was like, that's, that's a tiny you, bit. You stole my joke. I was going to be like, that's not relevant at all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know. Uh, but yeah, but looking at, um, you know, when we look at the conversations that are circulating this, uh, the current polarization, the reason that's usually most um, frequently offered is this discussion of bias. And I just don't find it very helpful um, because it doesn't give us any tools with which to navigate a conversation. Uh, yeah, we're biased. What then? And so um, I was really interested. I actually got into the field of media psychology because I was really interested at people not responding to media the way uh, it was um, intended. I grew up in an evangelical home and they would talk whimsically about the television of the 50s and how moral it was. But this kids that watched television in the 50s ended up in the free love and drug movement of the 60s. So, you know, something happened there that was way beyond just simple inoculation of a positive message. Um, So I was really interested at what our relationship with media is and how it facilitates um, value development, especially when people do not respond the way you expect them to. And that's what you reached out to us about I've been thinking a lot about your research that you shared with us, Lisa, and wanted to start with, can we just level set on a definition of bias? I feel like our world has gotten so crazy that we see bias as something that's more of kind of a monster under the bed than it really is. So can you talk a little bit about what bias is and specifically why bias is normal and healthy and helpful to us? Yeah, um, bias is sort of the intransigent influence of prior judgment. Um, But prior judgment is something that we have to have. Prior judgment, uh, when we apply it and it's not intransigent, we usually call that skepticism, right? Because when when we've made decisions about things and we've informed ourselves, it's natural that when we encounter opposition that we don't just fold. I mean, that's unstable. That's, That's not that's not desirable either. I just want to pause on that because that just made me feel better about life in general. <laughs> like, I guess right. you just, uh, it's always presented to you as like confirmation bias is such a bad thing. We all come in with all these ideas and you're like, yeah, but <laughs> we have to. Like, if we had to re-debate whether gravity is real or whether we think kindness is important and every time we're like, I don't know, I'm biased towards kindness or I'm biased towards like every single, like you said, that'd be so unstable and it would be tiring and exhausting. It would be, and we wouldn't be able we wouldn't be able to accomplish anything. And and that is, I think that that is really really an important aspect of the discussion because um, all of the current psychology that looks at this that focuses on bias is so obsessed with accuracy, 
And we're not wired for accuracy. And, and that's a good thing. I mean, thank God, because I would never get out of the door in the morning if I had to constantly debate, is this toothpaste the best toothpaste or is that toothpaste the best? I mean, it is, I'm wired for intention. I'm wired for, I don't need to know everything there is to know about uh, aerodynamics in order for me to fly from the East Coast to the West Coast. In fact, I'm quite sure that there are a lot of things I am totally wrong about, not just aerodynamics, but the way the airline industry works, the way any number of issues that that work, I don't have to be correct in it. I just need to know a certain amount in order to be able to achieve what I'm trying to go for. And so we're not wired for accuracy. We're wired for intention. That is so important, again, because I think we talk about our evolutionary brains and our instincts. And so often the narrative is they're working against us in an information environment or an information environment overwhelms our, you know, our monkey brains. And it's just the internet is too much for our, for our human brains and how they've evolved over time. But like, that's not necessarily true. Like, thank goodness that we evolve for intention and not accuracy as the amount of information available has grown and grown and grown and grown and grown. Exactly. I I could not agree with you more. Although I do think maybe we can come back to this. I do think that the internet is transforming us in a way that is as paradigm shifting as the printing press was, which is why we see so much disruption in society. But yeah, it's the, so the the intention is the more important thing than accuracy. And so this whole debate over accuracy versus error is really a misplaced binary. I think that the more important binary is certainty versus humility, um, agreement versus contingency, and independence versus community. Um, There's a tendency in uh, post-enlightenment, not to get too academic or theoretical about it, but to focus on certainty, individualism, and agreement to the exclusion of those other three, and that ends up being where bias becomes an issue because it's pretending as though I am navigating the world uh, capably as an individual with accuracy, and therefore you should agree with me. Um, uh, bias, uh, the underlying description is um, is naive realism. That's the problem that you see discussed in society. It's that I've looked at this situation, I've decided I'm not biased. Uh, and so, therefore, um, if you disagree with my perspective, then you're being biased. Mm. But that on the face of it is just, I mean, objectivity is exactly the opposite of that. Objectivity says that I am taking into account your perspective, insisting that you agree with my perspective is the opposite of objectivity. Right. So there's just this, this, um, this, uh, this, you know, discussion about internal bias as being the solution and trying to overcome that, the only way that that is achieved is not by looking at the bias, but by looking at the world that surrounds my position. Because I hold that position because I think other people agree with me. There's a world in which that position was formed. And that is a giving me impetus for insisting upon it. So, if I really want to understand um, where another person is coming from and and what may be helpful about their position, I need to know more about it, which is why when you say tell me more, 
that ends up being a far more instructive way at, at you know, achieving something helpful than it is insisting that you agree with me. One, I think two of the dangers that when we try to consider other people's opinions, I think two of the dangers that we risk are this relativism consensus. You know, if I take in everybody's account, then I'm just, then I'm just, uh, you know, it just becomes a, a rule by consensus, which is is not helpful. It's not as though uh, everyone's perspective um, is offering something helpful. Like, for instance, mm-hmm. if I'm thinking about the number six. And I've lived all on this one side of six. Uh, and I encounter someone that says, oh, it's a nine. Well, when I shift to that person's perspective, I discover a contingent understanding of that number. So that the experience of that number uh, depends upon what perspective that I'm on. So now I have a bigger understanding of this number. Now I understand it. Uh, but if someone comes along and says it's a four, and I go to their position, it doesn't because what they're saying doesn't have any bearing with what is in reality apart from my understanding of it. Does that make sense? No, I'm That's super con- the- okay. I'm confused by that example. If I live on the side of the six and I encounter someone that comes along and says it's a nine, my initial response is going to be, no, that's not accurate. I've lived on this side. I know it very, very well. So I take myself to their position and I find okay, actually it is a nine. And, but that understanding is contingent upon going to their side of the, of the wall and seeing the number from their perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is truth to what they're saying because I look at it and there's something outside of both of us. And I say, oh my gosh, yeah. When I look at it from this perspective, it's a nine. It is a nine because there's a number that's apart from our understanding of it. There's a um, that's why that's why you try to use numbers as an example because it's a good way to think yeah, of something. Right. Gotcha. It's a it because it's something um the reality that we're talking about is always greater than my ability to comprehend it, but it has mm. an existence of outside of myself. For instance, um Sergei Muscovici, who is the the um the theory that a lot of this is is based on, he talks about, I don't recognize you. I recognize the category that I put you in, mm. but you exist apart from my understanding. Category. Right. Right. So, um, but I, you know, I have you as a category, but you exist apart from my understanding of you. You, Sarah, exist apart from my, uh, from Beth and my understanding of you. Um, but that's not going to keep me from engaging with you. But at mm-hmm. some point, though, the way in which I am not understanding all of you, I'm going to run into uh, a way in which I was wrong and it will be a problem in our relationship. I'll have to make a decision about this new information. Does that help? Does that make any sense at all? Or yeah. have I gotten too theoretical? No, I think that does make sense. What I keep thinking about as you're talking is the stakes attached to wherever you're standing as you examine the six or the nine to stay with your example. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Mm -hmm. Me Too conversations, for example, because I think that's where we get very stuck in. It's a six, it's a nine. No, it's a four. And Mm -hmm. I think all of us have such tremendous stakes tied up in what we see 
in every example of a Me Too moment that comes across that it is incredibly difficult to extricate ourselves from the side that we stand on to actually start to just like walk Mm -hmm. around and see the rest of the shape to know whether it's a six or a nine or a four. Does that make, am I following your example when Mm -hmm. I say that? Yeah, it does. It makes, um, it's very, very tough, which is why what we're looking at is also not, it's not consensus, but it's also not empathy. Um, And by that, what I mean is empathy is when I share so much uh, emotional, um, you know, baggage with baggage or or, uh, that I share so much with the person who is in the situation that I'm not able to offer anything of value. Like, for instance, you know, if I'm um, with a child, if I empathize so much with the pain of a child uh, that I'm not able to see a way in which uh, discipline is necessary or medical treatment is necessary. I know it's going to hurt them, so I don't want to give them that shot. Or mm. I don't. Um, empathy is a is a um, is a collapsing of the critical dis- the distance that was needed for critical thinking. Mm. And I think when we look at some of these more emotionally charged situations, it's very difficult to. Um, to uh, restore the emotional distance that I need in order to be able to evaluate it critically. And, but that is what needs to be done. Um, And I also think that the Me Too conversation is again, not a conversation about accuracy. We're never going to know the, actually what happened there. The question I have is what kind of world do we want to live in? You know, is, um, Again, returning to the concepts of certainty and humility, where do I want to extend the benefit of the doubt? Because right. I am going to need to, you know, once a, once in a situation like this, examining how it is that these kind of misconceptions happen needs to be evaluated, which is why I'm looking so much into the Me Too movement to see what is happening, what is, what is the thought process going on with both men and women, when they're in these situations, what are they assuming before they ever walk into the door that makes decisions that help, that informs the decisions that they then make, that how many times they actually reference what the other person is thinking and, and feeling and doing, because that is going to be far more helpful and instructive to me moving forward in terms of saying, well, what I want to do is kind of create a world where these people see each other differently now, rather than reducing it to a situation where there has to just be accuracy or error. And so Mm -hmm. many of these discussions are like that. I mean, I think you could say the same thing about what's happening with Black Lives Matter with African-American men that are in encounters with cops. They want to make it about guilt or innocence. Did they do something wrong? Did they not do something wrong? If they just listened, it isn't a discussion about accuracy. There, These two people are coming into this relationship with a whole world of, of intentions about each other. Exactly. Of intentions. And if we, we, if we reduce it down to accuracy, um, we're never going to get at what's actually happening between this misunderstanding, this misunderstanding and the, and the misinterpretation of how the other is behaving. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what the debate is. I think saying 
that Black Lives Matter and Me Too, particularly with Kavanaugh's confirmation, is one side wanting to have a conversation about intention and one side have, wanting to have a conversation about accuracy is right. a really good way to break that down. And both sides yelling, thinking that they're yelling about bias. Yeah, because and, and in both of the situations, accuracy, again, is who's getting the benefit of the doubt. Like mm-hmm. what? When in a when a cop comes into a community of African Americans where they're going to be so frequently encountered the presumption of guilt, what is the benefit of discussing actual guilt? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it is there's such erosion of trust there to begin with that there's you know there's such gradations of a way of managing the authority that they've been dealing with for so long that it, it really guilt and innocence almost becomes beside the point mm. um, because you have to restore trust before you can talk about accuracy. And I think that's true for men and women and too. And these, you have to restore trust. You have to restore a relationship before you can talk about accuracy. So how do we do that? What do you, I know you talked about the tools at the beginning. I mean, how do we do that? in these national heated conversations? Well, I th- a good way to, good place to start is, uh, I think the title of your book, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. It is the situation of, of tell me more. How did you arrive mm-hmm. at this conclusion? If we don't ever ask, tell me more about how you arrived at your decisions, we won't move past it. And I don't, I think, you know, we talk so much about the, um, the internet as being a place of echo chamber. I really think it's also a place of the thing that we don't discuss is it's also a black hole, which means that my echo chamber, I get, I go into and I hear, um, my own views, um, back to me, echoed back to me over and over again. And then when I step out of that echo chamber, when I send what I think out into the world, where they think differently from me, it gets nowhere. I don't seem to make a difference at all with people that don't think like me. Um, and it, it, I think you actually talked about this at your, on your last podcast, um, uh, Beth, when you were talking about how people who got dumped into Twitter and were following people who didn't think like them, they didn't find that as a helpful experience because, you know, they're just experiencing the black hole of, um, you know, these people are talking right past me, but I, there's a recalibration possible here that could be really, really helpful and instructive in that if we go in and listen to what other people are saying, it gives us a chance to see the ways in which our own position is lacking. And Mm. we only get at that with the tell me more conversation. I mean, I think the problem is, though, we've now ascribed moral value to the very act of telling me more. I mean, it's like, you know, in certain circles, the idea that we would do, you know, a Trump, a profile on a Trump voter and and say, tell me more about why you decided this or tell me more why you're supporting Trump, like, is just because I think people also interpret the act of tell me more as further proof that that person gets the benefit of the doubt, that they get to explain themselves we still get to ask them why they care that, you know what I mean? So I think that's what the problem. As you're saying that, Sarah, I've been thinking throughout most of this conversation that that part of the answer here, if we want 
to decrease our polarization, if we want to kind of have a common set of facts from which we operate, is patience. And I think we are decreasing our patience for these conversations with one another instead of increasing it as we start to say, well, I don't want to do the emotional labor of educating you on this. And I'm not criticizing that. I understand where that's coming from. Or when you when you are part of this position, you are authoritarianism or you are canceled, you know, whatever social media term, as we're talking this morning, you know, there are people who are saying it is the end of the line for me with Van Jones because he's sitting down and talking with Jared Kushner this morning in such a friendly kind of softball way. And I understand that criticism. I can hold that alongside the fact that Lisa is saying we do need to hear from one another and we do need to say, tell me more. And sometimes we have to say, tell me more very patiently and gently to establish enough trust to have a real conversation. And so I'm wondering, Lisa, about when you put together what Sarah and I have just said, what you see as a path forward and are we thinking about this in the right way? Well, let me make sure that I understand what you're asking me. You're um, what I what I heard you talk about is the stress, the invariable stress that comes from holding my own position while listening to another. Yes. My response to that is, it. I mean, it is stressful. It is incredibly stressful. There's no, and we're living at a time now when it's just the easiest thing in the world to cave. The question that I have is, what kind of world do we want to live in? You know, it is, um, it is. Because of our technologies, uh, we are more aware than ever, not only of those who agree with us, but of those who disagree. We're more aware of the illusion of agreement. We cannot pretend that everyone agrees with us anymore. We are, we are hyper aware of the fact that there are, um, you know, reds and blues. And um, so the question becomes at what point does relationship become more important than being right? And which is goes back to the whole thing of realizing that my certainty must be balanced with humility in order to be able to move forward. In order to be able, I have to, I have to let go the idea of being right, of being accurate. I have to let, I have to surrender that in order to be able to move towards the intention of building a society. I just think there's a lot of Americans who have decided they don't want to build society with other Americans, with certain Americans. And this is where I was talking about earlier that I think uh, that our current technology is ushering in a kind of um, paradigm shift equivalent to the printing press. I, you know, I, I think you're right, Sarah, and I don't know that we'll be returning to democracy as we knew it. I think that there is a, a way in which this realization has unleashed something that doesn't, it's a genie that doesn't go back into the bottle. Yeah. There's a, a there's a way in which uh, we cannot pretend uh, that we, that we don't see this uh, polarization and, and what we choose to do with that in terms of how much energy we decide to put towards um restoring a relationship so that we can move together and that, that remain that's history that remains to be seen. I, I don't think there is an easy, um, well, if you just do this, we'll be fine. And there is great reluctance for this. 
Absolutely. But, and which is why I think that we're moving towards things that are history changing, history changing shifts, Mm. or maybe future changing shifts, not history changing shifts, but moving forward, I don't know that we will go back. I think what you're working on is really, really important. It makes me think about, I'm sure you've heard me kind of rail about corporate unconscious bias training in the diversity context before. And yeah. when I was reading um, the the 1,500-word summary that you sent us, I kept thinking about that because you're getting to how dissatisfied I feel in those trainings. I always say to people afterwards, what we were just told is we hold prejudices and that is okay and we should feel all right about that. And just be aware of it. And that's enough. And I feel like if we actually want to make a difference in corporate culture, and I'm sure this is true outside of corporate culture as well, but this is where I've thought about it the most. If you want a difference in corporate culture, all of your diversity programming should really be white people listening to the experiences of non-white people in the workplace. Not another white person explaining how our brains work to us. Right. Um, or maybe maybe it's an and, not an or. But I always just feel so dissatisfied when we have this whole discussion about, look, you you know, we see different things when we look at this and our and our brain is taking shortcuts. And da, da, da. I'm like, yes, of course it is. Of course it is. Now that we understand that we have an obligation to do something about it. But solving, right. trying to solve this problem from the limitations my own brain is imposing on me, as you've just educated me on, unconscious bias trainer, furthers the problem. <laughs> I need to be told by the person who has a different experience than me what is actually helpful. And I feel like we never get to that step. Yeah, we need to have the other person tell me their experience of me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need yes. to have them tell me their experience of me, their experience of my position. This is one reason why I love Hannah Arendt, because Hannah Arendt, yeah. basically, you know, when she's talking about taking your imagination, visiting, she what she's saying is, I'm putting what I think out there in the middle so that you get to tell me what you think about what I think. Because when you do that... I can go, oh, that's, you're, oh, you're, so I, I actually have an answer to that, but, but, you know, when we're talking about bias, we end up never sharing the invulnerable, the, I mean, the vulnerable parts of our argument. We never share the aspects that, um, that we're not so good on. Um, instead, we just lead with, you know, our main, our main point and, so if we get a chance to hear what other people think about what I think, I actually get a chance to find out where I have gaps in what I think to be true. So it's really, you're absolutely right in terms of, um, you know, whites listening to minorities is what's missing from the equation is that I don't know what it's like to experience my own whiteness. So I need for someone to tell me that because, you know, it's holding up a mirror and that's like, I I finally get to see, oh, that's what I look like. I never knew that. I mean, if you think about the fact, I feel so much as an individual, you know, I feel so self-contained, but I don't even know my own face. Uh, The people that are outside of me um, see my face and see what's going on with me more than I do. So oh, my, that makes my brain oh, hurt, but, but it's true though. Right. I mean, there's a sense in which, uh, my, um, experience of the world 
is so connected to the way in which people respond to me. And, and I just, we tend to discount that. Um, I don't know what's on my own face without somebody telling me that or using a piece of technology to hold it up to me. And I feel like as a society, we have finally had someone hold the mirror up to us and we are not liking what we see and we don't want to deal with it. Mm. Yeah. And also we don't know how to fix that, right? Because we're still, we just saw the mirror. It's not like we've had generations of that sorting that out. That's us. That's exactly right. It's the shift. It's a paradigm shift. I mean, we can't, we can't pretend that capitalism and democracy, uh, you know, um, operates with, a, um, you know, this invisible hand any longer. Now we're seeing the way people get left behind. And we're like, ooh, that's gross. I don't want to look at that. Um, you know, there's, we've just been able to live in denial for so long. And now we're actually having someone hold up a mirror saying, that's not my experience. And we don't, we don't want to hear it. But moving forward, we have the opportunity of saying, you know, democracy is not going to look the same again, but we're going to come up with a form of government that will end up incorporating this now. But that is not going to, those are not just easy conversations to have. Those are not just, you know, acknowledging your prejudices and moving on. Those are, those are paradigm shifting conversations. Well, and you know what I'm thinking about as you said that? I think it's that we are not trusting the mirror yet, right? Rather than confront what we feel when we see the mirror, it's that we don't like the mirror. And, and we have all kinds of information to validate our suspicion of the mirror. That's right. And so maybe that's the sorting out for our generation to do. Well, that's the tell me more conversation. That is that is the okay. You're holding up a mirror, and uh, but see, I have all these reasons for not believing the mirror. So my job as the mirror is to say, okay, tell me more about that. Explain to me how it why it is that you don't believe the mirror that I'm holding up in front of you. Because when I do that, I get to find out about all the gaps that are in the, you know, assumptions that they're making. Beth, what's on your mind outside politics? Have you started listening to the new Esther Perel? No. Chad told me that the Ark of Love, which is a collection of episodes like Where Should We Begin, uh, was on Audible this weekend. And so he downloaded it for our long car trip and we listened together. I'm just so happy when Esther Perel is in my ears. I feel like I'm getting so much good wisdom about how to be married. I did feel like Chad and I had a few moments of conflict that we resolved much better because we had listened <laughs> together to uh, Esther Perel's advice. I love it. My favorite moment so far, we're not all the way through it, but so far, my favorite moment has been this couple that came in. The husband is just like a serial cheater. And the woman was saying, can I trust him? And Sarah Perel said, you know that you can't. That's not the first question. She said, you want the end at the beginning of this process. You begin with, I cannot trust you. Now what? And we work through it. And hopefully, eventually, you get to trust. But you know you're not there now. And you just have to understand that this is the beginning, not the end. And I thought, oh, man, that is so wise in so many contexts. So I love it. I'm so happy that she's back. Love it. Here's what's on my mind outside politics. I am involved in an eternal 
power struggle with my three-nager. I love that term. My three-year-old, almost four-year-old, is he's mean. I feel like he's mean. I know that's inaccurate and not fair because he's three, but I just, three-year-olds are intense. I do not enjoy their company. And we are just, we are like full on conflict ridden. I just feel like all the time and this, I'm, it's wearing me down. It's just wearing me down. The, you, you know, the other day he said, I said, your shoes are on the wrong feet. No, they're not. Okay. You're three and you cannot tell left from right. And I am telling you that your shoes are on the wrong feet. And he had told him, yeah, no, they are. They're on the right feet. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do <laughs> with his, with a tiny person who holds me emotionally hostage because I told him his shoes are on the wrong feet, which they were. What am I supposed to do with that? I'm so frustrated. And I've done all the positive parenting webinars and I've read all the books, and I, like, understand on a, like, just basic level not to get involved in a power struggle. But, like, with it's almost impossible with a three-year-old because you can't even walk away or kind of go to, like, related consequences because they are just completely unreasonable about everything. Ugh. We are experiencing this same thing with Ellen. Exactly. And I don't know that I have any useful tips because we're just in it at the same time. I can tell you that it helps me a lot to just note that she's unreasonable. And so I find myself often just saying, you can be mad. You can just you can sit here and be really mad about it. I'm going to go over here and do this thing. And when you're ready to come over, I I would love for you to. But I'm not going to sit here and be mad with you. You're, you're welcome to do that. But I'm not going to be here with you when you do it. And that that just helps me. That is 100% for me. I have no idea what message that's sending her. <sighs> but sometimes you have to go. I get it. Like, you have to move. And no amount of reasoning or trying to offer her choices. Because that's, like, I always think, okay, what she wants is some control. So what can I give her to have control over? And I immediately try to think, what can I say? Would you like this or that so that she gets to make a decision? But it's a lot of work and that's not always available. Yeah, that's the thing. It just is. And I, I don't even think he cares at that point. Like he just wants to, he doesn't, my kids almost never fall for that. Like that just like the sort of, would you like this or this? Like I remember Griffin would always go, I want neither. I don't want to do either. Like they're just, they're they, they're hot on my, on my strategy, I guess. Yeah, just Ellen frustrating. Does that too. I'm just frustrated. I'm just gonna have to shine it on out of the stage. It's just the that's the long and short of it. Three is like that, and I with honestly, what I'm remembering is that four was even worse with Jane. So oh I'm no, just trying to I love a good four year old. Be patient. No, I love a good four year old. I'm all about pre K. I like a pre K. I like a kindergarten. I'm on, and I'm still like my nine year old's still super sweet. So like four to nine, I'm all in. I'll report back when I get to ten. So far, though, I like I love an early elementary school kid, man. I'm all in with them. I think they're awesome. Yeah, once Jane got to kindergarten, it was a delight again. But four was really, really rough. Ooh. You know, no one said it would be easy Ooh. or this hard. Truth. That's a good summary for everything we ever talk about on Pansy Politics. In the wise words of Coldplay, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We will be back in your ears, let's see, on Wednesday with an unbelievable conversation with Megan Devine on The Nuanced Life. And then we'll be back on Friday. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 
Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. And thanks for making us sound better and smarter, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our production assistant, which means we could not live without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you so much, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help make the show better. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major life-giving way. Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland, and my husband, Chad Silvers. Learn more about our live events that we're involved in and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with us and members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. 
Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.